Welcome to the Pierce Point Podcast. Today we are going to be heading into Luke chapter 10, but before we get into that, uh, Miss Tina Estes uh, mentioned something via text and said, when you all talk about Luke chapter 9 this week, verses 23 and 24, and you discuss taking up the cross, which is willingly dying to yourself and following him, losing your life yet finding it, will you talk about the seed uh, that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, John 12, 24, it will not produce life. Now, uh, I, I love this passage in John chapter 12. Here's, here's what it says, you know, kind of as a whole, and then we'll walk through it a little bit. But it says, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feasts. Uh, these then came to Philip uh, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is where this passage comes from. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, there's a significance to the first piece of this in that Jesus is referring to himself here. Okay? Um, he, he jumps in and says, the hour has come for me to be glorified, and then says, I'm going to remain alone unless I, uh, unless I die, and then he's going to bear much fruit, which would be everybody who follows that. But then 25 and 26 involve us. He says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Again, uh, he's willing to lay down his life so that it, you know, it continues for us. But then verse 26 says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. So it seems to indicate that we're going to follow Jesus in this laying down of our lives. And we actually have that confirmed in what we read yesterday in Luke 9. Um, but it is intriguing to me, this promise that is given that says, uh, if you serve me, you must follow me. Uh, but where I am, there my servant will be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And I just think that that's an amazing thing. We, we look at the cost, of course, and, and right, rightly so. We should be looking at the cost of following Jesus, and it is our lives. But the reward is amazing. The reward is life eternal. That's what we've just read, right? If you lose this life or hate this life in this world, it will keep to life eternal. And the Father will honor mm -hmm. that person. Just a powerful promise to go with the cost. So here's the cost, but yeah. look at these rewards. I don't think, we don't think too much about, uh, we, we think it's more us honoring God, but when you read this and it says that, you know, you, if you stay true, God will honor you. That's a, that's an amazing thought. Yes. And, and I don't think we, we can fully wrap our minds around it, but it is beautiful to remember that, that the very thing that we lost in sin, uh, we fell short of the glory of God. If you really spend some time looking at this, you find that, that the glory of man in the garden, the glory of Adam, the glory of Eve was that God had crowned this image-bearing creation to rule everything else in his creation. And you notice what happens in the fall when we fall short of the glory of God. This kind of thing is taken from us. The garden is taken from us. We're, 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 um, we're excommunicated from the garden. And all the work that we do in, in, in this world is is wrought with pain and toil and, and, and all of these other things. And yet in Romans, it talks about this restoration of this glory and God giving us back to reigning again. We are coming back to reigning. So the idea of God honoring us is not, not to be seen as in heaven, we get some, uh, you know, blue ribbon or something, you know, mm -hmm. hey, you've been honored. You're, you're, you're one of God's people. Um, our names are already written in a book of life, if that is the, if that is the case. But, but the honor is that he restores us to the very glory from which we fell. He has put us back in a place of ruling and reigning, and this in obedience to him, unlike what we were like in the garden. So 
just some fun, uh, fun thoughts there. So we're going to be rocking into Luke chapter 10. And the first story is Jesus sending out this massive group of people. So what stands out to you about that? Well, I think we've, we've been reading a lot about the 12 and, and a larger group of other disciples that, that had been following Christ. And we see in this story that, that uh, Jesus is actually sending out 70 folks that, that are followers of his, and it's you know the it's it's notable that we don't read anything else about the seventy after this story in Luke. We don't we don't hear anything about them now. It is likely that I think that they had gone on to actually keep working for the Lord, and obviously they they were there were a lot of folks that were spreading the gospel that were that were doing exactly what uh, Jesus had told them to do, but. Here is 70 folks that we're doing out, and Jesus tells them exactly, and we're going to get into that, exactly what he wanted them to do, yeah. what he wanted them to say, where he wanted them to go. Yeah. There's a slight bit of debate. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's definitely not debate that um, would cause us to, to worry about uh, the text and in, in it being truthful or not, but there's a bit of debate on whether or not the manuscripts read 70 or whether or not they read 72. Um, of course, people know that there is a great significance to 70 in the scripture. And some commentators would argue that, that, the, um, that the reason why some scribes would have originally copied it down as 70 instead of 72, mm-hmm. if in fact it's supposed to be 72, would be because they were used to writing that number 70. There were a lot of references to that um, in in ancient times. But what is really amazing, uh, not to look into some sort of deeper you know, spiritual meaning. Some people have concluded that this is that this is reflective of the Sanhedrin, and Jesus is replacing yes. that. and And there and there may in fact be uh, solid evidence and truth for that. And I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm I'm not going to address that right now. But what is amazing is that the call of God was to go into all the world and. Um, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. He pairs these guys up in twos. They're supposed to go out and they're to preach to the world. In Genesis 10, most scholars would put this together with Genesis 10 and say that 70 is the number suggested of each nation of the world in Genesis 10. Mm. And so the idea here is that Jesus is actually uh, referring back to this and saying, I'm going to send you into all the world, which is, of course, mm-hmm. a part of the Great Commission. So just an interesting uh, series of thoughts, whether it's 70 or 72 is, is not yeah. necessarily... It is interesting, the, the, the kind of thing that there's uh, the other 70 that I had read about was the, the 70 elders who went up with Moses to Mount, to Mount Sinai, where they saw the glory of God. That is in Exodus 24. Uh, so uh, we don't know that, but it, uh, I don't know that the uh, number necessarily means anything to us, except yes. that we know it, and it could have been yeah. 72. We just don't know that either. But And but, of course, uh, either way, 70 or 72, they can go in pairs of two, yes, and there is yes. significance in verse 1 in in those pairs of two in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. The idea, the idea is that two witnesses are needed Yep. In order to bring any amount of condemnation on anybody, sure. and so and so, the, um, it's amazing that even in what Jesus would do here, he would he would be following his own laws and commands. Mm-hmm. He would be walking mm-hmm. through according to the system of their world. So it it, it is. Uh, I, I think also the just by the sheer practical uh, practical nature of having two, you were. Uh, they they were they were going to uh, need to be safe. There was uh, they were in an area, and of course they weren't extremely well liked. Or at this point they were they were having pretty decent popularity uh, because of all that Christ was uh, uh, doing. But certainly not among the uh, leaders of the church of that day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and uh, the Sanhedrin certainly were not 
fans of Christ Absolutely. necessarily. So there, it may have been safety issue. Who who knows? But I think for me, the 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 thing that I the see that I see that's the biggest benefit of that is the encouragement and the help and the uh, uh, being able to have a brother in Christ that that you can go with and you can. You can Without trust them, and that's that's the biggest thing. For yeah, me. I, I think we do see uh, a measure of uh, a measure of danger in the story. It's implicit in the story, so we just walk through the story verse by verse. And after the, this, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now that line right there is going to make sense of later when it says the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus is there, the kingdom of God is there. (laughs) But the kingdom of God is near is the phrase we're going to see here in a second. But then verse 2 says, And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we'll we'll talk about that in just a Mm -hmm. second. But you notice here that implicit danger uh, came in verse 3. He says, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what the two is fully about, I think maybe it could be many things. Um, The idea here is that danger seems implied Mm -hmm. in verse three. So having a brother with you, there's a security, a safety, you fall into a pit, you got somebody to pull you out. Mm -hmm. I I love the fact that Jesus is once again using a a concept that these folks would have known. They, They knew about harvest time. They knew what the what it took to to bring a field of grain in and to get that and to get that harvested using uh, this uh, uh, picture this 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 uh, uh, word picture of a ripe field of grain uh, Jesus is 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 seems to be uh, saying there's an urgency he said therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest now it's notable to me. That this is this is the the Lord of the harvest. The harvest belongs to him. It's his. Clearly says that. But he needs those laborers. Without so, doubt. And uh, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Some of the translations say to send out laborers into the harvest yeah. field. I think when we uh, when we parallel the reference before of the 70 or the 72 referring to the amount of nations in Genesis 10. And then you read in Luke 24, the idea that this, this name has to be proclaimed to the nations or for example, in Acts 1, 8, um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's, it's back to where this mission is going. It seems that Luke's hearers or readers in this case um, would have understood this mission to be much bigger than just, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to send out these guys for this one little brief mission. Um Obviously, God is the appointer of the laborers in this. So why would why would Jesus appoint the laborers and then say, "Now pray for more," uh, because the because the harvest is plentiful? It seems that the harvest he's referring to is one that is going to go further into mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. But right now, he's shown them just in what they're doing. There's, there's this great need for the appointing of the ones he has sent. So mm-hmm. um, there's, there's definitely much to be uh, discussed on that topic, but here we are, and we see that this mission is going to go big, and God still tells, Jesus still tells these 70 or 72, you need to pray for laborers mm-hmm. because they are few, and the harvest is massive. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty mm-hmm. powerful picture. I love the word, the the Greek word for the the sending out of the laborers. That it the the Greek word is it seems to be much more powerful, forcible. It's that you would push them out, you would thrust them out That's to cool. get the world, you know, to get the word out. And it it uh, it was this actually it was the same word that was used for the expulsion of a of a demon from a man that was possessed. Drive it, out and drive them out and get them out of there and. Uh, uh, it, it is, it, it is, uh, and it's, and, and I find it very notable that in, in, in Luke, uh, three, 
he says, pray, pray to the Lord. I'm, I'm sorry, in Luke 2, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then it seems as though Jesus is answering the prayer by sending them out. Yeah. Go, behold, I, I send you. He commanded them to go. God would use them to answer the prayer. Yeah. I think yet again, we, we, um, we read these things through strange lenses. Um, and here we have, just as you pointed out, send means to drive out labors into the harvest. We, we tend to look at this as this kind of uh, loving relationship, which it is. I mean, I really want to make sure that I'm careful in this, but we have this loving relationship between us and our Savior, us and our Heavenly Father. But at the same time, if He is the owner of the field and we are the laborers, he has every right to drive us out mm-hmm. into that field. Mm-hmm. There's a command that's going. This is back to the idea that we uh, we have been given a great commission. Uh, we have not been given a great suggestion. Uh, he sends us out. He drives us out. He has every right to command us to do what he wants. Mm-hmm. And so I love that picture yet again. He says, you cry out to God uh, of the harvest to Drive out laborers into his harvest. Mm-hmm. Send out your workers. Mm-hmm. Send them out. And everyone who comes to know Jesus is commissioned in this respect in some form or fashion. Maybe they are not um, predominant or full-time gospel ministers, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, but they are at least to be obedient to to God. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that really stood out to me was when when we go into, and you mentioned that he says in verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This this was something that he had said before to the 12. Uh, In Matthew, I believe it was Matthew 10, he seems to be giving these 70 people the, the, the same instructions as were given to the 12 at this point. And he... When you think about this statement of lambs in the midst of wolves, it it almost feels like that Jesus is is telling his followers that to be Christ-like in a godless world, that they're going to have to be uh, uh, as have combined the combine the wisdom of a serpent with the harmlessness of a dove, and I. I, you know that is an amazing thought because that th- this was this was uh, Jesus carried that out in his ministry and many of the things that he taught he could have been far more like a serpent than he was a dove but he chose to be uh, in 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 most in most cases he chose to be as harmless as a dove while still teaching some very yes. hard truths these people were going to go out and. And, and proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand, and it was near them. So there were, there were going to be some yeah. very hard things they were going to say to some people. I think there are a couple of things that uh, just, I think philosophically, that we need to weigh here. And that is, uh, first, what we take, uh, what we mean when we say is something literal. For example, mm-hmm. yes, these are lambs in the midst of wolves. One way that we could read this, which I think is the wrong way to read this, um, but even if it is the right way to read it, it has strange implications. And that is, if we are lambs sent out on mission to wolves, then God is wanting to redeem wolves. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I don't actually think that that's what's happening. I don't think we should take it literal to say everybody in the world was evil and the and and um, wolves inside mm-hmm. of the world. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Make no mistake. But these lambs that he sent out among the wolves, here in a little while, he's going to say, I want you to... I want you to offer your peace to a house, and if they accept it, rest there. Well, those don't sound like wolves to me, right? So again, it's really important that we we don't go overboard in the way we read something. The way many people would want to read this is God's people are the lambs, and everybody they're on mission to is just a bunch of wolves. Well, no, not actually. And even if that were the case, apparently then God would want to redeem wolves. So we've got to take that into our ideas here. But what we're going to go to is this idea that there are going to be people who accept them, and those are the very people with whom God's people should stay mm-hmm. and minister and and 
proclaim the gospel. Now, so. this next verse, uh, verse four, carry carry no money belt, Take no bonnet, no, no money. shoes, yeah, and greet no one on the way. Now, uh, this is this was a this was a uh, uh, at the outset, it would seem like a confusing verse. Why would why would Jesus not want them to be prepared. Why would he not want them to carry money and no bag, no shoes, not not even to greet someone on the way? There's many. We have to go back to the Jewish the Jewish culture. First of all, as you said, the, the very next line, he's going to tell them how they're to how they're uh, uh, to 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 take care of themselves, how they were going to be fed, where they were going to stay. He's going. They're going to a house, and so. He did. He want them. He wanted them to take shoes, but just not an extra pair. They didn't need an extra pair. They were going to be. And and it, this is this lends itself to the urgency of the message. And and here was the one that seemed odd. And it and and if you do some reading, it will not seem as odd. Yeah. <laughs> to greet no one on the way. Don't be cordial. Yeah, don't don't be you cordial. dare be don't hospitable. Say hello. How you doing? Good morning. How are you? We ain't in Kentucky. Yeah. Don't yeah. wave to anybody. <laughs> yeah. But that is not not what Jesus meant. If you go back to the and it's so important that you go back to the Hebrew and the the Near East culture of the greetings. These greetings could go on for a half hour or better. They they had a ritual when they would greet someone, and it was it was not unusual to the, for them to stand there for minutes. I you. For minutes and minutes, saying, hey, "Tell me about this," and there was a, a kiss and a hug and this, that, and the other. That all went on about these greetings, and it would go on forever. And it reminds me so much of when we, if you ask someone, there are people that ask you, "Hey, how are you?" and they don't really want to know how you are. Yes, yes. But there are some that you ask how you are, and an hour later, you're still understanding how they are. Yes. They're very talkative, and that's okay. That's yes. great. But that is not what. Jesus is saying the urgency of this message was far more important than any greeting they could have. This was a uh, a very practical uh, command, and uh, they, they were to go out in 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 haste, in urgency, and trusting fully that God was going to provide for yes. them what they needed. You know, first of all, when it, he talks about the money belt and no bag, that God was going to give them the way to to be fed, place to stay. And, uh, but don't be uh, distra- distracted by some of the tedious ceremonies of greeting and etiquette that yes. was done. You didn't have time for that. Yeah, and I think, I think contextually when we follow this command and this story further, we see first, to confirm your point from before, when it says carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, that was obviously you might have been wearing your sandals. You just aren't to carry that extra pair or all these other things. The idea here is they're sent out in faith, just like the 12 were in a few chapters before. Yes. They're sent out by faith, and they have to trust that God is going to take care of them. Number two, they're on a very clear mission, and that mission is to go into the cities where Jesus is about to go. So like John the Baptist... They are preparing the way for the Lord in in some capacity. So greeting no one on the way, the people who are traveling from town to town, this is largely, um, it's not that God doesn't care for those people. And it's not that God doesn't want these people to be hospitable. We see their hospitality in the very next Mm -hmm. verse. But instead, they're on mission. They have a direct thing to accomplish. And Jesus wants them to get to it. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's all in what you just said. It's all about trusting God and getting on with what he has called them to do, right? So all of that is really important. And I think in the outplay of the story, we see its practical use, right? Uh, the, the practical use of the command right away. So then verse five, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be on this house. Now you notice that that is just entering into the house and you're declaring something. Then you have to get to the question of whether or not you're welcome. Mm -hmm. If a man of peace is there, well, you notice that it's sheep among wolves Mm -hmm. and, and now you have a man of peace who is there. That doesn't sound like a wolf to me again. So if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Mm-hmm. So this declaration that you're making, this this prayer or whatever it may have been, right, um, 
It's, it is a piece on the house. If it is rejected, then it'll return to you. Don't worry about that, right? Stay in the house where it is received. Verse 7, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, uh, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Like right even there, you're, you're saying, but why, Lord? I mean, wouldn't you want us to cover more ground? Wouldn't you want us to do those things? Well, there were enough of them sent out in this context that he's saying, you, you need to stay and you need to focus. And this is something that we talked about just a couple of days ago uh, on the podcast, and that is that uh, discipleship is something that takes time. It isn't this easy decisionism of the 21st century right. uh, American church culture. It is not, hey, you know, can you say yes to Jesus real quick so that we can move on to another city? Instead, he wants them to stay there uh, and he wants them to uh, invest in these people. I think that that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll speak more to the labor being worthy of his wages, but I want to get yeah. your thoughts on yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's that's very cool. That's a it, it there there was a it, the the Jewish style of things when they talk about this man of peace or that was a, a son of peace. Uh, it, they're, they're, they're the the uh, Jewish culture was that if a man who had a good quality or a bad quality. He would be called the son of that quality. So if it was a son of peace, not it would it it would not only uh, denote a peaceable man, but it would be one that was of of a good report. Yeah. It would be uh, upright. Uh, Literally translated, it's inclined towards peace. Inclined so. towards peace. Yeah, it would it it would have been they would have dishonored their mission had they. Taken up with a uh, uh, with those who who had a, uh, uh, a a solid background or one that was not not uh, there, there were many lodgings and inns that were that were uh, uh, run by folks that did not have a great background and and Jesus did, made it clear you, if 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 the peace doesn't rest on uh, if it doesn't rest on him. It's going to return to you, and you need to go. Yes, you need to go to the next house. Yeah. So, and at that point, important. you move on. Yeah, yeah. So, so he says that the labor is worthy of his wages, and we've we've heard this passage before. If we've mm-hmm. studied any of Scripture, uh, Matthew ten ten, we have the same idea. Uh, no bag for your journey or two coats or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his support. This was actually, I believe in Matthew 10, 10, it's the instruction Mm -hmm. given to the 12. Um, And then elsewhere, we have 1 Corinthians 9, 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. And then again, in uh, in Paul's writings, he writes to Timothy, and he says the, the famous quote from the Old Testament. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, mm-hmm. and the labor is worthy of his wages. So God, you know, calling pastors oxen again. But anyway, the, po- <laughs> the point still remains that those who share the gospel are worthy of their wages. And in this case, that those wages were, trust God, he will take care mm-hmm. of you, you will live. There's nothing implicit in this about grand prosperity. Right. And I think that that's an important idea. There there seems to be this idea that says, if you'll trust me with this, I will take care of you all your days. Yeah. I'm going to I'm mm-hmm. going to take care of you all your days if you if you're looking for a life uh, to study maybe a biopic of somebody from from Christian history's past, uh, I would recommend you you look up any kind of documentary or any kind of book on George Mueller. You you see in this man this amazing level to say, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to trust God so much that we're not even going to you know we're not even going to uh, write the check for this or do anything like this. We're going to wait till he comes through with with the money or with the 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 provision. And the way God provided for this man and the the orphans that he cared for and all this, it's just staggering. But right here, what we see is that kind of level of faith, mm-hmm. that level mm-hmm. that says, just trust God. He's got you. He's got you. Now, this is a this was notable to me, and I, I don't know that before I read this, I had I had never really thought about this 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 idea of 
uh, the laborer being worthy of his wages. I thought it was interesting that Jesus did not say the laborer is worthy of the charity that's given to him or the, the love or, the, or the, uh, uh, the offering that's given to him. He called them wages. And, and I think Jesus told his disciples not to, he, it, the teaching was in a roundabout way, to not, uh, not regard the support given to them as charity, but as, as it, was, it was a payment for their work on behalf of the, of the kingdom. Now, they were to, he was telling, trust God, God would provide for them. There's no doubt about that. Through generous people, there were people that let them stay in their house and they ate and they, he, he tells them, eat what's put in front of you. But and but and 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 they were to thankfully receive whatever was offered. But it wasn't a it wasn't a charitable type thing. Now in the mind of those giving, maybe so. But that's not what Jesus is calling it. He's calling it wages. Yes, absolutely. And I and I think if we if we just kind of take this back to where we started in this chapter, uh, God is the owner of the field. Yeah. God is the owner of the world. And he is driving out his workers, those gospel ministers into the field. Um, they are his laborers. They are his workers. And he, uh, we see it all throughout the scripture, he is generous. He pays those laborers. He, he gives them what they need to sustain them. I also think it's interesting that when we talk about uh, those who minister the gospel in First Corinthians nine fourteen, again the the passage that Paul says here, he says, "So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel." Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I don't know if you've thought about this, but that implies that there are people who do not. Um, proclaim the gospel. So therefore, they don't get their living from the gospel. Uh, what do I, why do I bring that up? Because although the Great Commission is given to all Christians, and all Christians are to let their light shine, and all Christians are supposed to be salt in the world, and, and, and all Christians have a responsibility towards kingdom ministry, there is even in that a clear distinction between those who are employed Mm -hmm. to do that ministry. And there is a uniqueness to that. I don't fully understand all of the inner workings of it, but what we see here is that the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel as if there were those who didn't to get their living Mm -hmm. from the gospel. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is making their living off the gospel. So you see a uniqueness in this uh, this life. I'm completely with you. It is one that is a is one that's that that sometimes I, I I believe that the meaning of this escapes me because it is it is amazing to me that that uh, that we can do what God is calling us to do and and He allows us to make our living doing that very thing. I I I, I got to be honest and say to you I don't know that I understand the concept of it. I am grateful to God because He takes care yes. of His people. And and uh, uh, I, I'm just I'm just amazed by that, and I I probably don't know as much about that as I need to know, just yeah. to be completely honest. Yeah, it is a privilege, and it is humbling, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet it is it something is that even even in ignorance, God's grace covers us, and we're working through it, and we're mm-hmm. learning every day, mm-hmm. both of us and mm-hmm. all of us who have ever uh, spent time in ministry. So we we roll on in this, and verse eight says, "Whatever city you enter." And they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, and I love what those healings were intended to point to, that the kingdom of God, and here it is, has come near to you. Remember, these, these people were sent out prior to Jesus going to these cities. So in effect, it seems that the, what is being communicated here is that the kingdom is about to show up because yes. the king is about to walk yes. through. So you be prepared, be ready for him. But these healings were to say to them that the kingdom has been brought near to you. Now, I want to parallel two things really quick here. And that is, number one, there were people who were sick and the announcement was the kingdom of God has come near to you. We keep going in the verses. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest. I love that. The original Protestants. We wipe off in protest. (laughs) 
okay, against you, yet be sure of this. This is all a part of what they declare to that city. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Okay, so to those who would receive healing, the kingdom of God is near to you because the king's about to walk mm-hmm. through. To those who reject, oh, make no mistake, the kingdom came near yeah. to you. Yeah. The kingdom is coming near to you. Uh, I just think that that's a powerful uh, statement it is on powerful. both fronts. That's an awesome, awesome observa- observation because whether whether we believe it, whether we receive it, whether we are changed by it, the kingdom of God Came is going to come near. <laughs> it's good, and it is. But that is, I, and and the healing, uh, the, the the kingdom of God was coming with power to do the exact things that prophets had told that it would do. But it was certain they wanted both camps to know those that those that were those that believe it and 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 are and are and are moved and changed by it and those that do not that it, it, it's a totally different uh call to them you're going you're going to see these these guys dust the the dust off of off in protest but you still know that the kingdom yes. of god has come near yes. to you and the next series of verses really communicate what is expected of those who who see this kingdom coming near. So verse 13, it says, uh, or verse 12, I say to you, now he's Mm. talking to those who had rejected, those who, you know, they wiped the dust off their feet. He says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin or Chorazin. Uh, Woe to you, Bethsaida, uh, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, Mm -hmm. sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Now, uh, again, well, continue one more, uh, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in in the judgment than for you. Now, notice this as well. Um, both groups had experienced healing. Yes. Both yes. groups had experienced healing. And the and the warning here is, if the miracles that implicit clearly happened in your lives had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Mm-hmm. So what is the clear sign of the kingdom coming near or what is the clear response to the kingdom coming near? Repentance. Repent. What, what didn't happen... Uh, even though miracles took place, many of these people mm-hmm. did not repent. Mm-hmm. And he says, woe to you. This yeah. is a problem. Yeah. Jesus was saying it, it is, it, it's somewhat of a, of a mystery to me that they, they, they saw these things. They had so many opportunities, so many chances. And, and, and he, he mentions uh, later in verse 15, Capernaum being exalted to heaven uh, uh, it, it, Jesus done have had done so many miracles and so many, uh, seeing much of his teaching, hearing him teach, seeing the things that he had done, and they, as you've said, they, they refused to repent. Yes, yes. So, so we pick up on verse fifteen, and it's just—I mean, his his words are pretty <laughs> harsh. You, Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? <laughs> His answer, you will be brought down to Hades. That's a powerful statement. We're, we're going to read in a couple of chapters that, that this is kind of the story between Lazarus and, and this rich man, this, uh, this mm. parable that Jesus tells, and the idea of being in Hades and the great chasm that separates uh, God's people from this group of people. So what a warning to this group of people. He says, you're not going to be exalted. You're actually going to be brought down. So verse 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that we're gonna, we, need to, we need to keep verse 16 in our minds as we roll into the rest of this because it's going to challenge our, our hearts because we're going to hear these words like, you know, Jesus Jesus draws whom he wants to draw, and we're, we're wondering, what does that mean? Well, we need to remember this. The one who listens to you listens to me. Mm-hmm. So if you listen to the minister of the gospel, you're actually listening to Jesus. The scripture would say, if you're hearing Jesus, you're hearing the Father. Yeah. This, is, this is the way the sequence works, if you will. And so he says, 
The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me, the one who sent me. Yeah. So here's the deal. Mm-hmm. If they reject the, re- reject the gospel minister, they're rejecting the Messiah whom we proclaim. If they reject the Messiah who we proclaim, right, they're, re- they're rejecting the Father. Yeah. And that, wow. But if they welcome us, they're welcoming the Son, mm-hmm. which is welcoming the... Mm-hmm. This chain is clear. In the text. It is so, completely clear. It's a great truth that Christ has, has set forth here. It's uh, that, that, that there, are, uh, there are people that are going to be judged and how they treat uh, when they're exposed to the gospel of Christ. It's go- they're going to, that's going to be a, a defi- defining moment for them as to how they're judged. And uh, my goodness, it's, cool. it's a weighty matter. There's yes, no question. Absolutely. So last thing on that section, uh, just keep it in mind, church, that just because miracles happen does not mean that the gospel is accepted. Mm-hmm. In Chorazin, in, in Bethsaida, in, in these places, Capernaum, the idea is these healings took place and yet... The warning is, if these would have happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, but you didn't. So there is no guarantee just because miraculous things happen. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. are coming to saving faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Many times they even reject that. Now, that's hard for me to wrap my head around, to be honest with you. I would think if if you've got a a child who's who's lying on their deathbed and and all of a sudden a, a disciple comes in and they're up and they're playing and they're healthy and whole again, you would think you'd be going, tell me about this Jesus guy. Yeah. But apparently many said, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the healing. We're moving on. Yeah. I'm reminded of the nine lepers versus the one who returned with gratitude. Mm-hmm. There's healing. It doesn't mean that they're going to glorify God in that. The, and, and this is a this is a this is a stark reminder to all people who go out and try to uh, win folks to to the Lord. They're not they're 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 not. No matter what you do, these there were uh, miracles that were done, as you said. There were things that they had seen. Jesus had taught them and was clear with them. And it's important to note that that for that. Don't don't hold too tightly to the to the re, to the rejection of you as a follower of Christ, or to the praise of you Amen. as a follower of Christ. Uh, if you, it should be it should be your goal to truly represent Christ, and if you do that, then 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 the results are not necessarily what's. Should, should should not shouldn't concern you. Now we certainly know that anyone who brings brings forth the kingdom of God, they want people to respond in a positive manner. Yeah. But but our greatest concern should be that we're we're representing Christ well. Yeah. Uh, I think the two ditches that we can um, we can fall into would be, of course, on one side, it would be it would be apathy. I can't do anything. It doesn't really matter. The other ditch would be somebody like Simon the Sorcerer, who who's trying to sell it now. You know, he's, he's wanting to get the power of the Spirit, and he's trying to sell this kind of idea. Both of those two situations would be wrong. The right, the right model, I suppose, if you will, would be, you know, look at Jeremiah, look at Ezekiel, look at these men who, who, proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed the truth of God's word to God's people and to the world, and did it even when they didn't listen. They did it. The The truth is we plant, we water, God causes the increase. We plant, we water, and you let God do what God does. So, okay, so the 70 are going to return now, and they're happy as can be, right? Yes. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying... Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says the most complicated line in the scripture. (laughs) I was in the NASB. I love the NASB's translation. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Give me your thoughts. Well, first of all, it was very, very notable and important uh, that when they talked, the first thing that they said was, "Lord, even the demons are subject to your to us in your name." The instructions that Jesus had given them in Luke ten did not originally include 
casting out casting out demons. Now, but clearly there was more. Clearly there was more than that. Is at that so this was somewhat of an unexpected unexpected blessing for these guys. Now the the key to it was. They're subject to them in in Jesus' name, Amen. not in their names. Yeah. We we know what happens to it, the guys yeah. that try. In the name of Filbert name. over yeah. here, yeah. nothing's <laughs> happening. But then, oh my, the 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 statement he made. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Yes, there there is a lot there. So yeah. uh, we'll just let's walk through it. Yeah, let's let's do it. Um, so. This is an interesting phrase, right? Some think that it has some sort of symbolic meaning referring to Satan falling and Jesus seeing that as the pre-existing son, Isaiah 14, and something something along this lines. But but the the phrase is more accurately accurately interpreted. I was seeing Satan fall like yes. lightning. Now, if you put that in its context, here's what here's what Jesus is saying. The 70 return, and they're excited. And they're saying, the demons are even subject to us in your name. And Jesus goes, yeah, I was watching them fall. Yeah. I was yeah. watching them fall as as though he's seeing all of these things happen. Now, there there's a powerful image, too, yes. because he's fully God and fully man. How's he seeing everything that's happening? Yes. Something's happening here. But nonetheless, the, the the kind of literal way to spell that out is, I was watching them fall. Yes. I was yes. watching them fall. Now, verse 19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of your enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Yes. Now, wow. So he says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. I actually see far too much of this kind of um, rejoicing going on in certain circles of the church where it is, you know, number one, everybody's pointing their finger at the devil, uh, trying to pick a fight with him. Please remember that the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee. Uh, the Bible even talks about the archangel, I believe it was Gabriel, might have been Michael. He's not even picking a fight right. with the devil over Moses' body. He's not willing to do this, but instead says, the Lord's going to rebuke mm-hmm. you. And yet there is this strange teaching in the church where people are trying to take up arms against the devil. And, and they all have noble reasons for it. They say, you know, well, you know, we're in a spiritual battle. Yes, we're in a spiritual battle, but you aren't that guy. So please be careful here, right? So number one, it's in the name of Jesus. And and number two, there's this challenging of the devil. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I think what you ought to do is rest in Jesus in this. You should resist the devil, fine and healthfully. But then there is this idea that Jesus says, don't rejoice that this is the case, that they're subject to you. Instead, just rejoice that your name is recorded yes. in heaven. I don't know. I've I've heard too many people seem to get this really off. Yeah, and I don't know where they got it. It is so important that he says that. But I, I if we if we fall prey to uh, uh, the the interpreting this about uh, the authority to tread on uh, serpents and scorpions as a literal meaning. Uh, we we we've got we've got a couple of issues there. Yeah. Snake handlers. Uh, as, as snake hand, we we have a a literal interpretation. It gives us two two problems. That first, it would represent that the trading on serpents and uh, uh, was was a greater work than casting out demons. Right. Clearly, not Clearly the case. Not. And it implies it would also imply. That that serpents and scorpions would not be a part of God's creation, and, and but belong to to Satan. That, that's clearly not true either. Yes. So so the the if we need to be very 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 careful about. Uh, taking a literal meaning yes. out of this, or we get into some really weird yeah. things. This this has everything to, uh, in it that reflects uh, language in the Psalms, right? Psalm 91, 13. Yes. This is funny. The psalmist says, you will tread upon lion yes. and cobra. Like, who's walking on a lion? Yeah. Okay, so 
clearly we're not interpreting this literally. You will tread upon lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Here in this case, we have serpents and scorpions. In the garden, we clearly have the issue with the serpent. But where's the scorpion business yeah. coming from? Yeah. We're, we have images of the enemy. We have images here of the devil and of his minions, you know, demonic activity. And what is amazing is that next line, you have, you have power or authority over all the power of the enemy. Yes. And nothing will injure you, nevertheless. Yes. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We have to find our greatest joy in that we are known uh, by God. Yes, absolutely. And that is so important that we don't miss this because it is easy to get caught up in the uh, excitement of things that, that, that we're seeing here that... that uh, that are that sometimes can be interpreted as Christ telling yes. us to do certain things that are absolutely not literal. Yes. So I, I, that's that's very very important uh, uh, that that we see that. Yes. So it's in this context, it's in this strange return of the seventy, and they're excited about this. And and Jesus says, "Yeah, I was watching the demons fall. I was I was watching this stuff take place." And he says, I've given you authority. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Verse 21 in that context says, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said these words. So none of what we just read there has anything to do with salvation. It it has to do with the kingdom of God coming near It has to do with what we read before, that the one who listens to you listens to me. They have the power to listen. This is really important. So in this context, then Jesus says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. We'll get back to wise and intelligent here in a second. And have revealed them to infants. You've revealed this power and not only the authority and not only the power, but here's the most important thing that he's revealed. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think that that's a part of what is being said here. So he says, you've revealed this to to infants. Yes, father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And here's that order again. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. What just took place? Mm -hmm. The 70 were sent out into all the cities to reveal the son. Jesus wanted them to know. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that they will be accepting. They may reject him, as we just saw. Even with miracles, they will reject him. So if we connect all of this within its context, what Jesus is saying here very boldly is, I'm sending people out to reveal me, and if they know me, they know the Father. This is the order that needs to happen here. And uh, some, as we learned yet again in verse 16, some listened and some didn't. Some did not. I... I loved first of all when it said in the in the original Greek when it says that Jesus uh, was well, he rejoiced greatly in the spirit. The Greek literally is translated he was thrilled with joy in the spirit, yeah. thrilled with joy at what God was doing. And you're exactly right. It it is so. Uh, it, what comes to mind when I see uh, his statement about that. Uh, uh, that these things were hidden. You you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have and have revealed them to infants. He call he calls them in in first in first Corinthians chapter one. It talks about God delighting in the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Yes, and uh, uh, Paul talked about that. And I am I'm just a, amazed by the fact that God can take the very uh, uh, mystery of the gospel and has given it over to those who will receive it and they will be able to confound the wise. Yes, absolutely. And remembering always in this context, yet again, I alluded to the idea that this is, this is not a direct, this is not a passage about salvation 
particularly. This is about the presence of God's kingdom and Satan's fall. We see that as its direct precedent, you know, the Mm -hmm. preceding Mm -hmm. verses of this. So it seems that he has hidden that reality from these quote-unquote wise and learned people. Uh, He does the same thing to Pharaoh in, in Egypt, right? He cannot see what it is that's actually going on here. And I think that there's something uh, powerful there. I think, um, I think the, that God permits uh, the sin of arrogance always in our lives to blind us if, if we are not humble. God rejects the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If we are going to be arrogant, He's going to allow that arrogance to blind us completely from everything that he's doing. I think there's something about that which is pretty mm-hmm. important. And, and you think about where he calls these, 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 these people babes or infants. It, I, most of these folks would have been, in our world, would have been called a new Christian. They would have been new in the Lord. They, they hadn't, none of them had been believers for that long. And to be able to... Uh, uh, these these were unlikely people to bring the kingdom of God in and to prepare the way for Jesus to come. They seem would seem to us to be unlikely yeah. people to proclaim that message. If you remember yesterday in the podcast, we talked about we talked about the reference to children and the idea that a child was a hum of humble state. The parallel here is with arrogance and humility. Mm-hmm. The parallel here is with pride and with humility. First uh, Corinthians one nine tell us, tells it best to us. It says, "For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside." The the people he seems to be hiding this from, or the people that cannot see, are those who who are pumped up in their own wisdom. And in their own mm-hmm. cleverness, and it's just not going to get them anywhere. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we roll on from this um, into, uh, and I, I just want to stop for a second and say the point about Jesus rejoicing greatly is just something that I want to picture. I want to see that. Yeah. I, that's just a, that's powerful. So awesome. verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And this is when, of course, this really interesting story pops up where a lawyer stands Mm -hmm. up and puts him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You can really overlook that if you're not careful. This man was not humble. Mm. Right? This man was not. He was putting him to the test. Mm-hmm. This is what is going on here. Um, so, so we need to kind of draw that parallel. And so he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We read this at times as if somebody came up to Jesus and said, Lord, please just tell me what I need to do. This is also not to be confused with the rich young ruler. Right elsewhere in scripture, right? right? This is something altogether different. And so the lawyer is testing him and you can imagine the the question being asked much more like this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's really, there's a lot of, uh, so you know best. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell me? Why don't you enlighten me here, Mm -hmm. Jesus? There There is an angst behind this man's question. Yeah. And it is important to note that this man was an expert in the, uh, the Jewish and Mosaic, Mosaic law. So I'm, I feel certain that he would, he would think he has a little bit of an upper hand here. Yes. But let me go back for just a second yeah, do it. to, to, the, uh, to uh, verse uh, 24, where, he, where Jesus said to, to, to the disciples, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. It comes to my mind about when he talks about prophets and kings. I think about King King David, who would have loved to see what Christ would do and and the things that he did. Or you think about the prophet Isaiah uh, would have longed to hear 
yes. the teaching of, of the Messiah and hear what Jesus was saying. But then it rolls right into this lawyer, this, this expert in the law, and his uh, question to uh, Jesus and his, uh, and his uh, testing of him. Yes, antagonizing yes. question here. So verse 26, um, it makes sense why Jesus responds the way he does. He said to him, what is written in the law? Now, that's a simple question, but then he asks kind of a modern-day Bible study question, yes. which I do not recommend you ask when you're reading <laughs> the Bible. Um, the NASB reads, how does it read to you? And you can imagine pastors coming out of the woodwork going, I don't care how it reads to you. What does it say? Yes. Right. But Jesus is asking this question of this antagonist here. He says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered... Rightly. It's amazing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And I love this statement of Jesus. And he said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus knowing full well, this man can't do this. Yes. He knows nothing of what he's saying. This is where we say things like, I know him and then somebody else says, yeah, but I know him. <laughs> it's this man knew what needed to be done, but he didn't know what needed to be done. So verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. Mm-hmm. See, he, he isn't doing these things. Jesus goes, sure, fine, do that. He'll be fine. But you're not doing that. So, but wishing to justify himself, this lawyer says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yeah. What? A question. But you know what's even better than that question? The fact that we're ending the podcast with that question. And tomorrow, we're going to come back and we're going to answer it as we talk about the Good Samaritan in verses 30 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 42. So how's that for a cliffhanger? I like that one. Okay, so uh, as I always do as we end the podcast, we want to hear from you. You can get on uh, the YouVersion Bible and join, hopefully, the the group on there so you can uh, post in the Talk It Over section. You can post on Facebook. You can send us uh, emails at piercepointchurch at gmail.com, nathanfrankhauser at gmail.com, or barneyestes at gmail.com, or barneyestes at yahoo.com. But we encourage you, uh, get a hold of us, get in contact with us. We love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your insights, uh, anything that you have, because we want to put that again at the beginning of the podcast and just keep this uh, keep this conversation going. So until tomorrow, have a blessed day, guys.